Last week, Justin took you through 1 Peter chapter 4 um, up through verse 6, verses 1 through 6. We're not going to retread that, but what I want you to focus on are two things that maybe you have lost sight of in this week, in the intervening days. Some of you have slept. This is a good thing generally, but in your sleeping, you've forgotten a couple of things, so let me just refresh you. Look at verse 2 in chapter 4. He's talked about Christ's suffering. He gets into verse 2, and look what he talks about. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time uh, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so what he's done, what he set out, is he says, this is what we're going to be. We used to, used to party, we used to get down with everybody else, but now our hearts are not living for the flesh, but living for the will of God. And so what Peter has reminded them of is, you are a people set apart, you are a people who are no longer living the way you used to. All of us have a backstory. Some of your backstories are more interesting than others. Some of your backstories are, are wilder than others. We all have some kind of backstory. And Peter's point in this is your backstory is no longer who you are. This is a good message for us this morning. Amen? Our backstories is no longer who we are. Who we are are people fully beholden to God. And the course that we are set on is to live our lives for the will of God. We are not who we were. We are living our lives for the will of God. Now we get into um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, and we find that the will of God isn't this kind of very mysterious thing that we're not able to know. Simply put, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God for your lives, your sanctification. Some of you are like, man, I thought it was to win the mega millions. I thought it was to win the, uh, the jackpot. I thought it was to do really well in Shreveport. I thought it was to, you know, to bet on college football and win. I thought it was all these things. I thought it was to marry a beautiful woman, a beautiful man. I thought it was to be happy. I thought it was to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. What we find when you boil it down, God's will for your life is your sanctification. Quit trying to figure it out. Quit trying to guess at all these things. God's will for your life is that you would be holy. And what we see here in 1 Peter is that Peter sets apart. He says, this is who you were. This is who you will be. This is who God is making you into be. And that is holy. Don't be who you used to be. Be who God is making you to be. God's will for your life is your holiness is that you would be holy. You get into verse 6, and he begins to bring in this idea of judgment. This is who you used to be. This is how they're living life. We recognize that Jesus is coming in. He's going to judge everyone. He's going to judge the Christian and the non-Christian on the basis of their response to Jesus and whether or not they are united to him by faith and belief. And so we get in, and what we see, and the reason I wanted to, to go back through that just a little bit is because it is absolutely connected to 7 through 11. There is a connector there that shows up in the Greek, but it's not in the English, that is uniting 1 through 6 with 7 through 11. So on the basis that God's will for us is our sanctification, on the basis that his judgment is coming, he's reminding us here in verse 7 that all these things are coming to their culmination. Look at verse 7 together. Peter writes and says, The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Now, some of you read this and you say, of course this is true. Of course this is true. I mean, I look around, I, I watch the news, and, and we've got two reprobates running for office, and I just don't know what to do. Of course, this is the end. For those of you with a sticker for one of the two candidates out there, recognize that, that I'm sorry, right? Either way. 
But as we look at this, and so no matter how you look at all these things, we recognize as he's getting into this, he says the end is at hand. The end is near. The end of all things. Now you begin to ask this question and look at it and wonder, in what sense is the end is near? I mean, Peter wrote this uh, hundreds of years ago, and so in what sense is the end at hand? In Peter's chronology and his understanding of how these things work out, we recognize that with the resurrection of Jesus, he ushered in the last period of time before the return of Christ. So Jesus is, is resurrected, and this last period of time begins, and so it is very much at hand. The next period of time in human history will feature the coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? Notice that over the course of 1 Peter, he has drawn their attention repeatedly. Where is their prize? It's at his coming. Where is their hope? It's at, it's at their coming. It's at Christ's coming. Where is their inheritance? It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And when will they receive it? At Christ's coming. So he's calling Christians not to be so distracted by the here and now, but to focus on Christ's return. Many of you saw this last week, and, and maybe your channels have just stayed focused on the Olympics. There's this, this epic picture of Michael Phelps swimming, and he's, he, I mean, he's knocking it out. He's doing the butterfly. I would impersonate it, but it's awkward on a wooden stage, right? And so he's, he's going for the gold in the 200 fly, and there's this picture snapped from the side view, and what do you see? You see Chad LeClaude doing this number. He's, I mean, he's, he's, he's got the arms coming over, and he's focusing on Phelps. And what's Phelps focusing on? Finish line. Touch pad. He's setting out to win the race, and what's LeClaude doing? He's setting out to beat Phelps. Now, what we see in this is an amazing picture of what we witness in our own lives. All of us, all of us are entered into this race. And in this race, we need only have one object for our vision. And it's Christ. So what Peter's calling us to here is this refocusing of vision. Now we all have a bunch of things going on in our life that pulls our mind and our attention and our affections away from Jesus and away from focusing on his return. Uh, you know, some of these start with the family, right? And so this idea of family, so family distracts our hearts, it distracts our attentions, it pulls us in a variety of ways. And, and so family can be a good thing. Family can be a good thing. Family can also be a bad thing. It can be a distracting thing. Work, all these things, sickness, our health, our finances. And so as we get into this, we recognize that there are all these things that are good things but can distract us. As we go and we recognize that church, church, religion, it can be such a distractor. Because we begin to focus on all these little things, all these particular ways that, that, that are our little way of thinking of things. People don't believe the way I believe. I just, I just don't want anything to do with them. People don't talk the way I, I do. People don't sing the way I do. They don't dress the way I do. I just, man, I can't worship with those folks. I can't do church with those folks. We get so distracted in all these things, we cut ourselves off when we insulate ourselves and we walk away. And in the midst of this, this struggle to try and find these things that satisfy self, find these things in all these ways that make me happy in the midst of worship, we begin to take our eyes off this focus and off this direction of the race that we are all called to engage in. Peter wrote to this group here, and man, they are experiencing tremendous difficulty. 
They're beginning to be marginalized in the empire. They're beginning to see these things take shape. They're beginning to find themselves what it is to live out a vibrant Christian lifestyle in the midst of an empire that in Peter's day is moving in an increasingly antagonistic direction. Do you think you begin to see that in our papers? Do you think you begin to see that in the media? Perhaps some of you, do you think you begin to see that in your families, in your workplace? But no matter what the distraction, no matter what the difficulty, look what he's calling them to. This reminder that in this focusing on the end, there's not a wringing of hands. He doesn't write and say, look, the end is at hand, so, you know, just, just give up. Just give up. The end is at hand, so just, just, just coast. The end is at hand, it's okay. We're, you know, and, and, and Jesus is going to come, and he's going to set all things fine, so you just go and do whatever you want to do. The question was posed once to Martin Luther. and said, Luther, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back today? Luther's response is incredibly helpful to us. He said, I'd go home, I would plant a tree, and I would pay my taxes. He said, I'd go home, I'd plant a tree, and I'd pay my taxes. The point Luther is trying to make is not that Jesus is well-pleased in his, his you know, fledgling Arbor Day foundation. The point that he's trying to make is that Jesus is not well-pleased in, in, in his fiscal responsibility and fiduciary responsibility under the government, giving them back what they are owed. The point that he's trying to make is nothing changes for me. Nothing changes for me. But for many of us, if we were to live our lives with the intention and direction, focusing on Christ's return, so many things would change for us. Why? Because our hearts have been led astray by distraction. The whole point that Peter made in 1 through 6 is, this is who you used to be. Those former things that used to distract you, used to take your attention off of Jesus, they are not you anymore. The end is at hand. Therefore, focus on Jesus. Look what he says in the second half of verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So many of us, we spend our times trying to, trying to change, trying to modify, to make this reality be what we think it should be. That we get led astray. And so for us, it's not this picture of being self-controlled and being sober-minded, but being this hapless idiot that runs around like a chicken with its head cut off. All the time yelling, the sky is falling. What he calls us into is this beautiful picture, one of sobriety and two of self-control. Idea of self-control. That focusing on the end, focusing on all things, finding their culmination in the person and the work of Jesus Christ does not lead us to despair, but it leads us to place our good and true and only hope in him. Amen? So he calls us, he says, be self-controlled. Have this manner and sense in you that you are working and investing yourself on taming the flesh. Taming the flesh, taming our hearts, keeping our minds from being wayward, keeping our minds from, from easily losing focus on what our one and true allegiance should be, and that to Jesus. So he goes in, he says, be self-controlled. He says, be sober-minded. The quick, and, the quick and easy application of this is if you are drinking to the point of intoxication and doing this readily, stop. Stop, get help. If you can't stop, 
get help, allow other people to come alongside you. We recognize alcohol is not the only thing that intoxicates. Alcohol is not the only thing that, that distracts us, that dilutes our effectiveness for the kingdom. There are so many things, so much more potent and damning in our lives than alcohol. We recognize that the, the jokes about Baptists exist because largely they're true in some sense. But they say, if you don't want a, a Baptist to drink all your beer, invite two of them, Right? You don't want a Baptist to drink all your beer, at least invite two of them. Why? Because they never drink in front of one another. Now the rest of you are, no, that's true, that's true. I've seen that, I've seen that. But alcohol is not the only thing that is, that is distracting our attention, that is pulling our hearts to focus on all these things. Man, there are so many things. For, for some of us, it's, it's the idea of sex. We're so intoxicated with this idea, we're preoccupied with it. Whether you're a teenager and this is just kind of this, this high-end goal that you set your heart on, things will be so much better when I begin to have sex. Things will be so much more amazing when I begin to see this as a reality for my life. And so it's this, this focus of your hormones all pushing you, thinking this is the greatest thing for you. This is the most ultimate thing for you. You're not being sober-minded because you're focusing on something other than Jesus. For some of us, it's our work. And this is, this is my own particular preoccupation Somebody asked me this week, we're in the midst of engaging and talking to people, and this guy asked me, he said, how do you keep yourself from, from giving too much of yourself to work? I said, why did you have to ask me that question? Why can't you ask somebody else? That's not a fair question. Because you see, I, I mean, I, I love what I get to do. And because I love what I get to do, I find myself giving more and more of my heart, more and more of my time to it. Because in my mind, like I don't have this on and off switch, and so you write, you email, all these things. I'm thinking of it. How do we change this? How do we do that? And which is a good thing. I mean, you should love what you do. If you don't like what you do, uh, your lifetime is too long to do it. You need to find something else to do. But I love what I get to do, so I find myself giving more and more to it. But the danger in there, the difficulty in there, is, is that it can find its way to becoming this intoxicating effect. No longer being effective in my family. The way that God has set up and ordained things, I can no longer be as effective in the church. I can no longer be as effective in the staff. And look what he says here. He ties both of these things to our prayer lives. So when we find ourselves moving away from self-control, when we find ourselves moving away from being sober-minded, we find our prayer lives are effective. Why? Because both of those things move to distract us from spending time with God in prayer. Prayer is quiet meditation before God. Recognize prayer is two-way. I mean, you, I, I, I've met some, some drunks that, that don't have any problem talking, right? And so they just blab on and on and on about anything and everything under the sun. But when you want to engage in winsome conversation with them, it's decidedly one-sided. And so what he's drawing us here is he's creating this picture in our minds that we need to find ourselves being able to not only speak to God, but hear from God. And this requires us that we take all of our energies and we captivate our attention and our focus on Jesus. It's for the sake of our prayers. Some of us, it's this idea we're not able to be sober-minded because we're so captivated in worry. What if my kids don't come home? What if I lose my job? What if I can't make this payment? What if people found out what I was really like? What if my spouse found out? 
What if God really knew who I was in the quiet reflections of my heart? So all this worry and anxiety comes in and it clouds our mind and it, 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 it obfuscates our, our, our focus and inhibits our ability to focus on Jesus. It obstructs our ability to focus on the reality that the end is at hand and it inhibits our ability to have a vibrant and amazing prayer life. The Apostle Paul, engaging in writing in some sense dealing with the same idea wrote these words to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Read these and just hear from the Apostle Paul and from his heart. He writes and says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus so in this, we recognize that when the, when the worry and anxiety begins to cloud, it begins to obscure, it begins to make difficult us focusing and having a vibrant prayer life, what are we doing? We're disbelieving the promises of God. Notice in this that anxiety, fear, anxiety, and worry are removed from our lives, not by this muscling down of becoming this this, this he-man of kind of self-preservation, this wonder woman of, of self-denial and, and, and saying no to these things. This kind of Seinfeld idea of serenity now, serenity now, serenity now. If you haven't seen that episode, you should. It was wonderful. But it's this full reliance on the Spirit of God. You look at almost anything in the Christian's life, and if you ask the question, how do I get better at doing this? It's by recognizing that you can't get better outside of full reliance on the Spirit of God. We need lives that are not better in, in, in terms of what we can make them, but lives that are more enhanced by the working of His Spirit in our lives. And you know what this requires of us first and foremost? Personal humility and brokenness before God. Can I tell you that you can mislead your spouse, your friends, your coworkers, your employees, Everybody that sees you, you and I can sit in my office for hours and you can tell me how great, wonderful, and amazing your life is. And maybe I'll believe you. But your heart before God, it is not obscured. It is not hidden. It is fully revealed and known. And in the midst of him knowing you, know this truth. That in the person of Jesus, at your most hideous, at your most despicable, in the person of Jesus, you are fully loved by God. This should terrify and amaze us. Amaze us that this all-powerful God of the universe would love us in our brokenness, in our shame, and in our rebellion terrify us to the point of stripping away sin in our lives. Why? Because he sees every single misdeed and he knows every way we're thought. Want your prayers to be impactful. Want your prayers to have potency. Want you to have a vibrant prayer relationship with our Heavenly Father. We've got to be self-controlled. We've got to be sober-minded. Look in this. Peter begins to move 
really outside of the realm of the kind of personal, hey, this is for me, back to the realm of communal, hey, this is us, okay? Now, the next thing he says here, uh, he's addressed in some sense earlier in the letter, earlier in the letter in chapter 2, he told us that we need to be loving one another with brotherly love, and he comes back to this idea. Look what he says. He says, paramount, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly. Why? He says, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, it looks like Peter was quoting, and quite loosely at that, from Proverbs ten twelve. But in this, look at the first call he has. Love one another earnestly. Do you know what it looks like to earnestly love someone? What it looks like to, to give all of yourself, all of your intensity and devotions to, to loving someone? If you're married, you know what it looks like, especially after you've done something wrong, right? Your spouse knows what it looks like after you've done something wrong. But what we find in this is an application not just to the wonderful and the lovely, not just to those that we're related to by family. What he relates it to, what he connects it to, is everyone. This is difficult. Why? Because some of you are obnoxious. You got rough edges, your rough edges bump against other people's rough edges. Some of you, it's, it's like hugging, hugging a prickly pear. And it's, like, it's like grabbing a cactus and wrapping it up. I love you, man. Oh, this is hurting. The more time that some of us spend together, the more annoyed we get at one another. And this is kind of his point. This is kind of his point. He says, love one another earnestly. And then he goes on to say, look, it covers a multitude of sins. Now, our love for one another does not have, in some sense, this absolving effect. And so Dale and I, say Dale and I spend a lot of time together, we're, we're engaged in this relationship as friends, and I'm just, I'm fervently loving him, and he's robbing banks and killing people on the weekends. Right? My love for him does not absolve him of his guilt. And brother, I'm not going to jail for you. Just know that. <laughs> I've seen way too many prisons, prison movies, that's not happening. And so my, my love for him does not absolve him of guilt. And so this idea that it covers a multitude of sins, the only love which covers and atones for sin is the love of Jesus poured out on the cross at Calvary. But what we're called to do is mirror, mimic that display of love. The cross of Calvary, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just met out at the wonderful people. So it wasn't that he said, all right, who out there is not a horrible, despicable, awful, terrible person? I want to die for you. I want to die in your stead. That's not what he did. In fact, even in the midst of this, even in the midst of his dying, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How did he do this? It's through this continuous outpouring of of love on the unlovable. This is what he's calling us to do. This is difficult. And when really when you move outside your, your nuclear family, really when you move outside those people that you get along with really well, well, your peer group, your friends, it gets more difficult, more pronounced because different personalities come in. Different life experiences come in. Different educational levels, different viewpoints, different political opinions come in. So within this church... You notice this week I sent a note to all the life group leaders and I said this fall we have a really delightful opportunity not to engage in hateful speech towards one another. Within this church we have people of various political opinion. 
We have people that are, are Democrats. We have people that are Republicans, Libertarians. Uh, I'm sure somebody out there is a part of the Green Party. You know, why not? And so we have all of these various opinions. And in the midst of this, I just went ahead and I thought, you know, we're going to really struggle with this. And so in life groups, please, please don't talk about politics. In your life groups, don't talk about politics. And so I had to send this email out. And as I'm sending it, I'm thinking, this shouldn't be. This shouldn't be. Why? Because I'm face to face with this text. And it says right here, love one another earnestly. Can I tell you that I can come alongside a brother or sister who disagrees with me politically and still love them? And still care for them and still minister to them and still pray, God, help them see that they're wrong. But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, I, I'm not, they're not diminished in my evaluation on the basis of who they're going to vote for in November because I recognize there's so much greater than one vote, one choice, and one decision. Amen? So we look at this and we recognize that when we come alongside, when we have to love one another, we're not just loving the people that agree with us, but this is largely what we do. This is what we do. The difficulty for any church of any size over five is loving those you disagree with. Valerie and I were part of a of a really small, in the beginning, Bible study that had hopes of turning into a uh, church, we sang the same three songs for six months in a row, incorrectly, I might add. Brother should have listened to it. <laughs> That's not how that song goes. Your voice goes down, not up. Up, not down. That is the wrong emphasis on that syllable, right? But still in the midst of this, we recognize that this small group, maybe six, seven people some weeks, four or five people other weeks, in the midst of this, this call to love him was not removed from my life. And it was hard. Some weeks I did better than others. Some weeks, no, he always sang bad. But we recognize that in this, this call, the question for all of us being in a community together is how are we loving one another? Now, the call in this is, has this particularly annoying word, earnestly, fervently. And so into this, understand this. If you are not giving considerable effort and energy to loving people in this church outside of your spouse, you're disregarding this instruction. Now, what does this call you to? It calls you to a time investment. It calls you to humility cause you to forgiveness. Now, why do I mention forgiveness? Over the last few appointments I've had with folks about joining Ridgecrest, something I've added in the last few months is, when I make a mistake, would you forgive me? I just go ahead and tell them that up front. When I make a mistake, when somebody else in this church makes a mistake, would you go and talk to them before you leave? We're going to fail you. We're going to fail you. I can think of two or three women in this church that will probably not fail you, but I'm going to fail you. I'm not going to fail you on purpose. And what we see in the midst of this is that in the midst of failure of, from those around us, what are we called to do? To love them in spite of it. It's going to hurt. It's going to wound us. It's going to take us some time to forget. But our response shouldn't be retribution 
It should be this bold, amazing display of pouring love back on them. Because in loving them more and more and more, we find that their sins are being covered over. Because you're so busy loving them that you're not busy tallying up all the ways they failed you. Look what he goes on to next. Got to love them. And then we got to have this idea of showing hospitality to one another. And then he recognizes he knows exactly who we are. So he says, without grumbling. He knows exactly who we are. For the longest time, I had this terrible habit of inviting people over without clearing it with my wife. Don't do that. That's not what he's talking about. But this idea of showing hospitality... Hospitality in Peter's day, a lot of what that looked like, they didn't have inns, they didn't have Motel 6, they didn't have all these things readily available for the average person to be able to go into. Why? Because they could not afford it. And so they would go stay with family, they'd go stay with friends, but the family unit was quite tight. And so inviting somebody in, a stranger, an alien, someone they did not know, was more difficult. And so in the midst of this, his word to them is show hospitality, which communicates to them, let other people stay at your house. Take care of them while they're there. Take care of them while they're coming through the city. Now to us, what this looks like is opening up your home and displaying what it is to be a vibrant, to have a vibrant display of Christianity around those people in your neighborhood, those people in your church. This is the immediate reaction I get from a lot of people. My house isn't quite ready yet. House isn't very large. It's a one-bedroom efficiency apartment. My kitchen is my mattress. Now, like, we can talk. You have legitimate grounds. You can't have anybody else in because nobody else can stand in there with you and, and close the door. But if you're waiting to be hospitable until your house is ready, until it's big enough, clean enough, pretty enough, you probably will never be most amazing opportunity we had to be hospitable was this nasty little apartment we had in Prague. You know, when you're moving somewhere, and, and let, me just, let me just give this to you. This is a pre, free piece of advice. You should write this down if you ever plan to live internationally. When you go to leave a job, whenever you go to leave a group of people, you're going to say this. Don't say this. We would love to have you come for a visit. No, you don't. There are people you work with, some casual acquaintances. You actually don't want them in your home. You wouldn't mind having them there for a dinner party, but having them fly thousands of miles to spend six days with you in an apartment not set up for more than two people is not something you're willing to sign up for. Trust me on this. Do not say those words. <laughs> say this phrase. We'll see you when we get back. Okay? So we had this couple come over, this, this couple I work with. I knew them all right. But I was an idiot, and so I said to everybody, man, if you're ever in Europe, come on by. We'd love to have you stay with us. Why? Such a moron. And, and so, but what I didn't know is that we would get an apartment that if I'm in the kitchen, I've got these glass blocks right here in a kitchen sink right here, okay? And I'm just like, <whistles> I'm washing dishes. You've got your hobbies. I've got mine. And so on the other side of these glass blocks is a shower. And some of you are thinking, that's kind of awkward. European design, baby. I don't know. And so, and if you're in the shower, it's not like there's the shower wall. No, it's just like, oh, there's your naked midsection. 
And so we had these people come in and, and stay with us. And so Valerie and I would just stay in the bedroom until we heard the water quit running. And we'd say, are you dressed yet? I don't hear a response. I can't go out there. And so, but what we did, it didn't stop us from being hospitable. It didn't stop us from having people in our apartment. It was such a tiny place that when we'd have five or six people over, we'd have to line up and say, all right, look, he's got to go to the bathroom. Everybody else against the wall so he can go to the bathroom. If you wait to have an appropriately sized home apartment or that it's clean enough, nice enough, you won't ever have anybody over. What we see in this text gives us no instruction, no out for not having a place that's presentable. Be hospitable. The greatest place that you can display the gospel is in your home. Why? Because your walls go down. All the little things you put up that when you go out to the marketplace, when you go into the workplace, all these barriers that you put up, they're not up at home. You take your shoes off, you lay on the couch, you're wearing different clothes, have people into that environment, and there live out a bold picture of the gospel. Amen? Show hospitality with one another. And do so without grumbling. Enough said. Let's look at this next deal. 10 and 11, Peter transitions and he begins to look at the idea of of gifts. Now, if you want to look at the idea of of gifting in a little bit more detail, Paul really rolls it out uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. I mean, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to spend some reading time this afternoon, you can look at it in a little bit more detail. Now, what Peter does is he describes gifting in terms of two categories. He's not saying just two gifts are given. He describes it in terms of two categories. These categories are speaking and serving. Now, understand this. Maybe you're new to the faith. Maybe you're new to the church. In salvation, each one of you is given, a, given gifts or a gift, teaching, preaching, hospitality, like some gift has been given to you in salvation. And then on the other side of this, some of you are very good at certain things. Now, I, I want to draw some distinction here between gifts and talents, okay? You're good at things. You're, you're, you're very good with numbers. Congratulations. You're, you're, you're really just, you're good at, at working with trees. I'm not. I mean, these are like, these are brown thumbs. This is awful. I kill everything I touch. And so you're very good. And so you have some talent. You have some skill. These things can be used for the kingdom. These things can be used, these talents, skills, and abilities. You can use them to glorify God. Great at setting a house. You're great at doing whatever. These things can be used within the realm of the church, and they should be. You should use those things to be impactful for those around you. But what Peter turns and looks at here is the idea of gifting. Now, immediately the idea of gifting, it gets somewhat confused and, and, and messed up in our minds. And I really, I don't know if this is true, but this week as I thought about it, I attributed it all to children's birthday parties. The reason we struggle with the idea of appropriately using our gifts is because of the birthday parties we had as kids. You're wondering, how could this be? Last kid's birthday party I was at, that I remember was my own. If we're your kid's birthday party, this is not what I'm talking about. I have blocked it out. It was a painful experience. I do forgive you. We're in there, and it's this birthday party and this idea, and and who's the center of attention? It's the honoree. It's the person whose birthday it is. And what do we do? We bring them all these gifts, and we lay them at their feet, and we say, open it up. 
And then they open it up and we're like, oh, fantastic. A thousand and five hundred Lego set. I can't wait to give so many days of my life to that. And then you're going to play with it and destroy it. And then I'm going to step out in the middle of the night. Personal experience, this is not you. So we see them get all these gifts and get all these things. And, and everything is all about them. And everything is all about pleasing them and giving them gifts. And man, for kids' birthday parties, in some sense, this is what it needs to be. We're, we're showing them they're treasured and they're valued. And we're, we're doing it by giving them cheap plastic things that are going to break in a week and a half. And so we give them all these things. Then we find out in salvation that you have a gift begin to think, man, my gift is this, my gift is teaching, my gift is hospitality. And you begin to think that as you use this gift, that it is pleasing to you. It feels good to work in your gifting, just like it feels good to work in that which you're talented to do. If you're a teacher and you're in the classroom and you genuinely love teaching, you like kids, which those are good things and you should like kids if you're a teacher, and you're enjoying what you're doing. If you like numbers and you're good at it working in finance and you're an accountant and, and there should be some joy, you should derive some joy. If you like starting businesses, you're an entrepreneur and you're kind of in your zone working, you're, you're lining these things out, you should derive joy. This should be good for you. The problem, the problem resides in Christianity. We bring these gifts in, when we begin to exercise them, we are waiting, what? Typically, typically for our own personal satisfaction in the exercise of these gifts. And when that's our end goal, when our end goal in serving is our own personal satisfaction, we've missed it. When our end goal in, in serving, in the use of our gifts, is our own personal satisfaction, we've completely missed it. And we've disregarded the intention for those gifts. Look what he says here. As each has received a gift, what? Use it to serve one another. Look how he ties it. He says we use it to serve one another as stewards of God's very grace. So this is the picture that he paints here. That if you are gifted in a certain way and you only use it to please yourself, to satisfy yourself, you're not being a good steward of God's grace. This is a hard message for us to receive. When I first began to, uh, to talk, to speak, man, I, I absolutely loved it. Why? I loved to watch people come alive. I loved to see their emotions change. I loved to see all these things. I loved how it made me feel. I did. And so I began to change things in delivery and address to create more of that feeling that I desired, more of that, that sense of, of gratitude, that sense of just kind of this warmness inside. And this is what we find, that if in the use of our gifts, if we, the individual using them, is the end goal, then we misuse our gifts. And what we have to do is to disabuse ourselves of any notion that our utilization of the gifts of God are intended for anyone else than those for whom they're used upon. We use our gifts to be impactful for others. We use our gifts to serve one another in, the, in serving one another. Look what he goes on to say here. In serving one another, God is glorified. Now look at how. 
He says, whoever speaks is the one who speaks the oracles of God. So we recognize that if you are in a teaching capacity, a speaking role, if your gift manifests in such a way that you are communicating to others, this is what he says, that the weightiness of what you say should be determined, should be, should be tethered to the fact that you are speaking an oracle of God. Now, what does he say about that? When we are communicating, when we are teaching, we are absolutely tethered to the content of the 66 books of the Bible. That we don't go up there and say, look, I know it says this here, but my opinion on that matter is thus. I know the Bible says this, but really, they didn't mean that. We tether ourselves to the communication of the text. And so he says, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Look at the good news, he says, for the one who serves. He says, as one, one who serves, one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I want you to understand something. There are two ways that you can serve in this church. There are two ways you can serve in God's kingdom. One is your own strength, and two is in God's strength. And you can go in your own strength for a long time. You can go be the most bubbly, amazing person you can be for a long time, and nobody's going to know any different. But what does he say in there? That if you want God to be glorified, you can't do it in your own strength. What I want you to understand is something here. This passage is calling us to tremendous humility and brokenness before God. Some of us are more naturally charismatic than others. That's just kind of by virtue of kind of who we are. But if we allow our charisma, if we allow our dynamism to be the equipping power for our service, we fail. We fail. You might be the most amazing salesperson ever born. Maybe you could convince somebody or make somebody feel good just by virtue of your presence in the room. You radiate goodness. I'd like to spend some time with you. But other than that, what we recognize in here, if this is just who you are and you're operating in your own strengths, in your own giftings, outside of full dependence upon God, you are operating incorrectly. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles. Whoever serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? So that what we're communicating isn't our own wisdom and our service isn't our own strength. And then in doing those two things, God is glorified. The end goal of all of our service is that God be glorified. Not that we'd be recognized, not that we'd be known, not that we'd be celebrated, not that some end come about as a result of our service, but the end goal of all of our service, as Peter writes it here, is that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Amen? Look at this last little thing he says here. The end goal for all these things. The end is at hand. We recognize that in the end being at hand, our minds have to be a certain way, our hearts have to be a certain way. We have to love those around us. And in loving those around us, we find ourselves serving them. In serving them, we find ourselves needing to be uh, more greatly infused by the power of God's Spirit. For the end goal that Jesus may be glorified, and he gets to him here. Speaking of Jesus, he says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And they all said, Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, I thank you that you are breaking us to ourselves. That our service, our actions, our attitudes are meant to be for your glory and not for ours. Your renown and not for ours. God, I confess this is a difficult thing for us to keep up. Our natural pattern, what we see, is a celebration of people, not the celebration of their creator. So God, would your spirit be at work in us to prompt our minds and our hearts when this becomes our desire? When we desire for that to be our reality? God, would you continue to move in our midst? Would you, surrender, would you help us to surrender our hearts to you? Would you bake, break us to the strongholds of the flesh? Would you help us to cry out for you? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.